0: the time is now right for all Americans to join together in a bipartisan effort to fulfill our constitutional obligation of restoring the United States Supreme Court to full strength.
1: Oh, Ronnie. Ronnie well, Reagan. I don't know why I came here tonight. So quaint. I got the feeling something right. I'm so scared because I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Let me choke us to the right
0: Here I am, stuck in the middle
1: with you Yep Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you From Pacifica Radio in want, Los want Angeles is. This is your broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ On the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove Out in Pennsylvania on 93FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, The Detour in East Tennessee, welcome aboard Detour, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist. Troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. The entire current legal strategy of the conservative legal movement has been stymied, I might say upended, by the death of Justice Antonin Scalia, according to Tierney Sneed over at TPM Today. Scalia's unexpected passing robs conservatives of the 5-4 advantage they had on the Supreme Court at the very moment they were making arguably their most aggressive play yet to cement some of their most cherished and longest sought legal gains in areas like abortion, voting rights and affirmative action. Even any favorable outcomes in some of the test cases that they have lined up for the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court has already heard are now in jeopardy, notes uh, Tierney Sneed. We will talk about that momentarily with my guest, uh, Ian Melheiser, after this, uh, well, the past few tumultuous days. Rather extraordinary days uh, following the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. More on that in a moment. As a matter of fact, more on that uh, throughout the show, including with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report in a little bit. Hi, Desi. Hello. Our our producer, Desi, and of course my co-host on the Green News Report, will be talking about the effect of uh, Scalia's death on this unprecedented ruling, uh, frankly, by the Supreme Court just days ago. His last, uh, one of his very last, one of his very last actions on the court.
2: Yes, putting a stay on President Obama's landmark emissions reductions policy to cut emissions from power plants, called the Clean Power Plan. Uh, it was a 5-4 ruling, and mm-hmm. the uh, conservative majority on the Supreme Court decided to put a stay on those regulations, and that would essentially freeze them while they're being adjudicated. That has never been done before. Well,
1: it's not unusual for the uh, uh, this particular court to block uh, this particular president, but the fact that they did it uh, w- while this case is still being heard in the lower court is what makes it extraordinary yes. and un- And of course, uh, just days later, they wouldn't have been able to do it because it would have been uh, tied four to four and uh, the lower court ruling would have stood. And the lower court ruling for now says, no, the Obama's Clean Power Plan can continue throughout the challenge that is being brought against it.
2: Right. And that would be the norm. That is the norm with every other federal regulation that has ever been promulgated ever in the history of the United States.
1: You just said promulgated. So right there, I'm impressed with you, Desi Doyen. (laughs) We'll come back to you uh, uh, more in a bit on uh, on that story and much more in our Green News report a little bit later uh, today. Also, um, well, Ben Carson, Ben Carson, who I have long said is uh, so, uh, you know, yes, he's a neurosurgeon. Yes, for some reason, people call him brilliant. Uh, I don't find him to be so brilliant. As a matter of fact, I don't find him to be uh, really smart in the least. You know, nothing personal, but I'm just not impressed by him. Uh, he gets a lot wrong. And in fact, during the uh, GOP debate over the weekend in South Carolina, Ben Carson actually said that there was uh, it was there was nothing in the Constitution. What did he say? There was nothing in the Constitution about the uh, president's powers uh, to to nominate, to appoint and, and right. nominate. Uh, that Supreme is exactly Court what he
2: said. Yeah. Well, the Constitution doesn't say anything about this particular situation.
1: So no genius. He however. Uh, Even a uh, what do they say? Even a stop clock is 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 right twice a day. Ben Carson conceded in a recent interview that he did not think the GOP would stall a potential Supreme Court nominee if their own party controlled the White House. Oh, you think? In an appearance on South Carolina radio station WRNN, Carson was asked if the presidential candidates on on the uh, debate stage last Saturday would have the same position if a Republican controlled the executive branch. He admitted, "quote." No, they wouldn't.
2: Well, at least he's intellectually honest.
1: At least on that point.
2: On that one small
1: thing. And at least for that one moment, because uh, just moments later, he said, recognize that the two picks that the president has selected so far, he's talking about Sotomayor and uh, uh, Kagan, that uh, they are ideologues. So there's really no reason to believe that his next pick wouldn't be an ideologue also. Hardly ideologues, either of them, Sotomayor or Kagan, at least they have not revealed themselves to be ideologues, certainly not of the uh, uh, the type of right wing uh, ideologue that clearly uh, Antonin Scalia was. Uh, but in any case, uh, at least he uh, was right for a moment in time Ben Carson was there. Uh, in the meantime, the uh, as you know, we talked about it on yesterday's program that uh, Mitch McConnell, Senate majority leader for the Republicans said that he would not uh, even allow hearings to move forward, which is, in fact, unprecedented. The fact that there would be no hearings and this claim that, oh, it's the last year of a presidential administration, therefore there will be no confirmation to a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. That has never happened despite what he says and essentially uh do we have that yeah we do we have, here here's that quote from uh from Mitch McConnell about uh, whether he would allow this nomination to move forward none shall
3: pass what none shall pass
1: <laughs> okay not really Mitch McConnell but uh money python but you get enough. the idea close enough yeah because if you look back at what Mitch McConnell said in 2005 he said quote Uh, The Constitution of the United States is at stake. This was when Democrats were potentially blocking uh, some of George W. Bush's appointees to the court. He said Article 2, Section 2 clearly provides that the president and the president alone nominates judges. The Senate is empowered to give advice and consent, but my Democratic colleagues want to change the rules, they want to reinterpret the Constitution to require a supermajority for confirmation. In effect, they would take away the power to nominate the president and grant it to a minority of 41 senators. So at that point, he was talking not even about hearings, he was talking about Democrats blocking a nomination with a filibuster. He also said the Republican conference intends, this was again back in 2005, Mitch McConnell The Republican conference intends to restore the principle that regardless of party, any president's judicial nominees after full debate deserve an up or down vote. I know that some of our colleagues wish that restoration of this principle were not required, but it is a measured step that my friends on the other side of the aisle have unfortunately made necessary for the first time in 214 years, said Mitch McConnell in 2005. Democrats have changed the Senate's advice and consent responsibilities to advice and obstruct. And at that point, he was talking about getting an up or down vote for nominees. He wasn't even talking about whether they would hold hearings, which he has now said, no, we will not hold hearings in the U.S. Senate. Whether that holds, however, there is a question. More on that in a moment. The president of the United States, meanwhile, was speaking just moments ago at a press conference in Rancho Mirage, California, near Palm Springs, out here uh and he was asked about the supreme court vacancy had a lot to say but here in general is is the gist of much of his comments but this is the
0: supreme court and it's going to get some attention and we have to ask ourselves as a society a fundamental question is it, are we able to still make this democracy work the way it's supposed to the way our founders envisioned it and i would challenge anyone who purports to be uh, adhering to the original intent of the founders, anybody who believes in the Constitution coming up with a plausible rationale as to why they would not even have a hearing for a nominee made in accordance with the Constitution by the President of the United States with a year left practically in in, uh, In office. It's pretty hard to find that in the Constitution.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, You know who the Republicans could use right now? Antonin Scalia. He was somebody who uh, pretended to believe in the Constitution and he would come up with all kinds of things that weren't in there at all. All kinds of reasons to actually do the opposite of what the Constitution said. But mm, oh, well, can't lean on uh, Scalia for that anymore. In the meantime, Republicans, that was uh, the president uh, speaking moments ago, uh, but Republicans uh, on Monday, they began to close ranks behind Mitch McConnell and his vow to not consider any nominee, any nominee from the president. Senator Rob Portman, Republican of Ohio, he faces re election this year. He said in a statement that the uh, Senate should follow what he called common practice to stop acting on lifetime appointments during the last year of a presidential term. There is no such common practice, Senator. Senator Patrick J. Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, also agreed, leaving nearly every vulnerable Republican incumbent backing Mr. McConnell's pledge. Uh, The fact is, however, uh, that... um, None of the last 12 successful Supreme Court nominees waited any longer than 100 days for a confirmation vote. And President Obama will not leave office for uh, about 340 days. In the meantime, while those Republicans are, are you know, coming together to block the president, there are some indications that there may be some uh, there may be an opening here. Senator Charles Grassley. Of, of Iowa, Republican of Iowa. He's the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's the one who would hold these hearings in the U.S. Senate if they, in fact, move forward. Uh, over the weekend, he said he would wait until the nominee is made uh, before making—actually, no, over the weekend, he, he agreed with uh, 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 Mitch McConnell on this. But now he is telling Radio Iowa, he said, I would wait until the nominee is made before I would make any decisions. He says this is a very serious position to fill and it should be filled and debated during the campaign and filled by either Hillary Clinton, Senator Sanders, or whoever's nominated by the Republicans. So it sounds like he was, uh, well, walking back his previous comments just a little bit. There may be some wiggle room there. At the same time, Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine, she is not up for re-election. She, too, sought a middle ground. She said, quote, Our role in the Senate is to evaluate the nominee's temperament, intellect, experience, integrity, and respect for the Constitution and the rule of law, suggesting she might be open to hearings. One more uh, crack in the foundation came from Senator uh, Tom Tillis, Republican of North Carolina. Over the weekend, he said that uh, Obama should not nominate the next justice, but he added today, quote, I think we fall into the trap if we just say sight unseen, uh, we fall into the trap of being obstructionists if they say no. So there is uh, maybe perhaps some wiggle room if they are looking for inspiration on what to do. Perhaps they could turn to uh, to, to King Ronnie, to Lord Reagan, to the uh, highly exalted Ronaldus Maximus, who said this back in 1988, his final year in office, when he was calling on the Senate to do their constitution, constitutional duty and fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court with now Justice Anthony Kennedy.
0: I believe the mood and the time is now right for all Americans in this bicentennial year of the Constitution to join together in a bipartisan effort to fulfill our constitutional obligation of restoring the United States Supreme Court to full strength by selecting Anthony M. Kennedy, a superbly qualified judge whose fitness for the high court has been remarked upon by leaders of the Senate. In both parties, I have sought to ensure the success of that effort.
1: That, of course, was liberal Democrat Ronald Reagan back in 1988 calling on the Senate to approve his nominee, uh, calling on the Democratic majority Senate, I should add, uh, to approve his nomination of Anthony Kennedy to the Supreme Court, which they did in an election year unanimously. Just saying. So this fight uh, is absolutely extraordinary. It is unprecedented. Any of these Republicans who you hear saying, oh, it's tradition, we never do this in the final year. That's absolutely nonsense. That is absolutely extraordinary for them to block for what would amount to at least a year, uh, actually a year and a half. Or so by the time the new president, whoever it is, comes in and they nominate someone and that person goes through the uh, nomination and voting process. So this is all extraordinary. But there has been a lot of extraordinary things uh, since Antonin Scalia's death over the weekend. One of the most amazing things to me was learning from the SCOTUS blog, a blog that almost exclusively follows the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, that when they explained just after the news had broken about the death of the controversial Supreme Court justice, that any cases this session that Scalia had already heard and had already voted on, but that have not yet been released publicly, won't count now that he has died. Writing over at SCOTUS Blog, Tom Goldstein said, votes that the justice cast in cases that have not been publicly decided are... Void. That was uh, quickly offered as the definitive word on this matter. That is amazing, if true, because a lot of important cases have been heard so far in this past session of uh, the Supreme Court, but have yet to be handed down publicly. If they were decided five to four, one way or another, or at least they were going to be decided five to four, with Scalia included in that five vote majority, those cases will now be a four to four tie decision instead. That could be very good or very bad news for both parties. Unexpected news to be sure in many of these cases, uh, many of which were brought to the court after pretty clear signals from the courts right-wing majority that they wanted to hear such cases so that they could make some fairly uh, landmark rulings on a number of very big and very contentious issues in this country. A number of those cases we've discussed on this program over the past many months with constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser of Think Progress Justice. He is also author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. But, of course, much of what we thought we knew when we had Ian last on uh, about some of these cases uh, may now be completely upside down. Joining us now is Ian Milheiser, whose writings have appeared in The New York Times, L.A. Times, U.S. News and World Report, Slate, Guardian, American Prospect, Yale Law and Policy Review, and the Duke Law Journal. Ian Millhiser, uh, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you for joining us so quickly after we recently spoke to you
3: to be back. Yeah, it seems like a whole lot has happened
1: since then. You think? Uh yeah, this is uh this is really big doings. Uh and I want to go through you made a uh, you wrote a, a great piece headlined the simply breathtaking consequences of Justice Scalia's death where you go th- through sort of case by case, the big cases that are before the court that may now be decided totally differently. Uh but before we go through those uh There has now been discussion that uh, Scalia was dealing with some very serious medical issues of late, Uh, and while you and I had also spoken on the show about the idea that some four Supreme Court seats may be filled by the next president, I I don't think anybody suspected Scalia was going to be the first to go like this, Uh, did they? This, This must have come as much of a shock to you as anybody else.
3: Yeah, well, I mean Scalia was seventy-nine years old, and you know, when you get to be that age, you know, mm-hmm. mortality is a thing. Uh, you know, one thing to bear in mind from this is that there are three justices who are still on the court and are also quite elderly. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, we could have as many as four vacancies on the Supreme Court. At very short order, and with the dysfunctional Senate that we have right now, that means we could potentially have four vacancies and no possibility of filling them in the foreseeable future.
1: And that foreseeable future could go beyond even this term. I've heard, uh, you know, that obviously all of the Republicans now are taking this unprecedented uh, stance that uh, the next president should decide, even though there's a year left, but there's really no guarantee. I've I've seen this discussed as well from various legal scholars. There's really no guarantee that if a Democrat is elected in, uh, you know, in in 2016 to serve beginning next year, and the Republicans still control the majority in the Senate, there's actually no real uh, guarantee that they would consent to a presidential appointment in the next uh, period either i mean we could go three four five years without a full compliment on the supreme court couldn't we
3: yeah no, that's exactly right i i I mean you are looking at well right now their talking point is that we want the next president to be the one to fill the seat Mm -hmm. but you really think that if a year from now it's it's president hillary clinton or president bernie sanders Mm -hmm. That Mitch McConnell is going to say, oh, well, I didn't like Barack Obama, but I just love Hillary <laughs> so much that, of course, I'm going to let her get her, get her nominee through. I mean, chances are the country is going to be in the exact same position if Mitch McConnell is still the majority leader that, 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 it, that it, we find ourselves in right now. And so it's possible that, this, that these seats could remain, remain vacant for years. I mean, pretty much the only way that it looks likely that there's going to be nominees conferred to these seats is if after the election there is a president and a, and a senate of the same party.
1: Is there any precedent for going uh, this long? Whether it's uh, now a year, that would actually be like a more like a year and a half. If it's not until the next president comes to office that someone is appointed, so a year and a half to, uh, you know, as many as I say, a three, four, five years. Is there has this ever happened in uh, the history of this country?
3: Yeah, I, mean, I I don't know of a circumstance where a seat was vacant. I, I mean, there are circumstances where. A justice decided to retire, Mm -hmm. and they said, "And they said, I'll keep my seat until you find a replacement for me." Uh, And it took a little while to find that replacement. But even in those circumstances, you know, I know of no case where the party that controls the Senate announced. In Mitch McConnell's case, like it seemed like it was within minutes of the news breaking that that there was a vacancy. That it doesn't matter who Barack Obama doesn't matter who the president of the United States said. Sends up,
1: that person will not be confirmed. We are obviously in uncharted territory, and I I think that even some of the conventional wisdom that oh you know uh, it has become conventional wisdom as you say that you know no one is going to be appointed under this president, but the idea that they would be appointed under the next president, I am questioning that conventional wisdom as well. And also, I wanted to ask you, uh, Ian Millhiser, about what Scotus Blog uh, wrote. They declared fairly quickly, as I noted, that uh, votes that uh, Scalia had cast in cases that have not been publicly decided are void. Now, is that a certainty? Uh, Is that more a... a, That's more a tradition than law, correct? I mean, couldn't justice... uh, That
3: that is is a certainty. I mean, the the case isn't decided until it's handed down. Mm -hmm. So if it's handed down today, there are only eight justices. You know, the fact that... Justice Scalia was once a justice is no more relevant than the fact that Thurgood Marshall was once a justice, or, or that you know John Marshall was once a justice two hundred years ago. You, you know what matters is who sits on the Supreme Court at the moment the case is handed down. So any case that's handed down tomorrow, I mean, it might, it might have a footnote acknowledging that Scalia um, was present for the oral argument, but
1: you know there there will be eight justices okay um, all, who, who decide that case well so let me just confirm this with you in other words you're saying that chief justice john roberts could not come out uh, tomorrow and say hey these three or four cases, uh, Scalia had already voted on his deci- His uh, opinion had already been written. They are completely done. The only thing that didn't happen was uh, they weren't released to the public. You're saying there's no way that he could do that and justify that in any way, shape, or form, right?
3: Well, you know, I never put anything past <laughs> Chief Justice Roberts. Uh-huh. But uh, no, I no, mean, it's very well established that the rule is that. The opinion is, you know, the, the decision is not filed until the opinion is handed down. I mean, look at what happened in the first Affordable Care Act case, where, where Chief Justice Roberts famously flipped his vote. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, the dissenters couldn't complain, but you said you were going to repeal Obamacare before you. You said you were against it before you were for it. It right. doesn't matter. You, you know, it, it is not a decision of the Supreme Court of the United States until the minute the Supreme Court, you know, theoretically. Yeah. The justices could be in the robing room, you know, putting on their robes, getting ready to walk out and announce an opinion. And one of them could turn to the uh, to the other seven and say, "You know what? I changed my mind. I, I'm going to switch my vote on this case." And then they'd have to go back to their chambers and redo the opinion.
1: Okay, I'm going to hope you're right about that. Uh, I just, you know, like I said, I don't trust uh, Roberts. I've seen enough from this court where I think he could say, "Well, you know what? In the interest of continuity in this in this uh, country." Uh, since this case was already done, already written, all the opinions were already on paper. uh, We're going to go with it as is, so this is a settled matter, and we don't have a split. But I hope he doesn't. I hope you're right, and I'm totally off base. Speaking of being totally off base, let me make sure, uh, ask you about this. Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, says, of course, that the president shall nominate and appoint Supreme Court justices with advice and consent of the Senate. Must he, wait, must he wait for them to vote on a nominee? Is there any workaround there? Has there ever been any uh, uh, difference in the way that uh, works? Or does the majority of the U.S. Senate essentially hold all of the cards here for as long as they wish to hold them?
3: Yeah, I mean, as a practical matter, he needs a majority vote in the Senate to confirm a nominee. I, I mean, what the, what the Republican caucus is doing now It's unprecedented. It's unprofessional. I could come up with a lot of other words for it that I'm not allowed to say on the radio. (laughs) But, like, it's something they have the power to do. You You know, you cannot be referred to the Supreme Court of the United States unless a majority of the Senate votes for you. And that's why we potentially find ourselves in the beginning of a constitutional crisis now. Because, like I said, you know, It's not like they're going to be. It's not like Republican senators are likely to be any keener to confirm someone to the Supreme Court if it's Hillary Clinton's nominee or Bernie Sanders' nominee. And so we could be waiting a really long time. You know, there's also the fact that you don't expect Democrats to forget what happened here. The next time there's a Republican in the White House and a Democratic Senate, I wouldn't expect anyone to be confirmed either you know so we're potentially now entering a period where the only t- time when anyone will ever be concerned to the supreme court is when the same party controls the senate in the white house
1: and but we do have uh, uh the president does have the ability to uh to make a recess appointment uh correct now i know in modern times uh right. th- they don't go on recess anymore they consider these uh, these right. these uh, t- sessions to to be continuing even though no one is actually there. But is there any work around there, and is there any precedent there where uh, presidents have appointed uh, Supreme Court justices for lifetime position without the consent during a, a recess yeah. uh, recess appointment? Yeah, I
3: mean there, there are plenty of precedents for people being recess appointed to the Supreme Court. or Warren was a recess appointment before he was confirmed. Uh, President Washington recess appointed John Rutledge to the chief justiceship. So, like, there's plenty of precedent for recess appointments to the Supreme Court. That's not really all that controversial. Um, the problem is, is that the Supreme Court recently shrunk the recess power so much that, like, it doesn't not exist anymore. But, like, it may only exist once a year for about five seconds. I mean, <laughs> literally, that's the top smallness of the window where the the president can use that power. And so, you know, for now, the president's saying he's not going to make a recess appointment. I think there are good reasons for him not to make a recess appointment right now, because um, a recess appointment is temporary. It's a maximum of of two years if you time it at the exact right moment. Mm. Um, And, you know, you want someone permanent there. So you you want someone permanent there for a lot of reasons.
1: And of, um, and of course, if it was challenged, uh, his ability to recess uh, appoint someone, that would go to the Supreme Court, which is now divided four to four along ideological lines. And to that right. end, uh, Ian Milheiser, let me take a quick break uh, and uh, and we'll come back and go through some of these cases, these huge cases that now may have a completely different outcome than we had uh, been predicting over the past several months. I'm speaking with Ian Milheiser, constitutional law expert from Think Progress Justice, uh, author of the book Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Let's take a quick break, and we will be back with more Milheiser right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation, but we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going or even just a one time only contribution Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Speaking with my guest, constitutional expert Ian Millhiser. He is author of Injustices the Supreme Court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted, talking about what he describes as the simply breathtaking consequences of Justice Scalia's death. And, of course, we've been talking about those uh, uh, consequences, how to replace him, if he can ever be replaced with this current uh, broken, dysfunctional uh, uh, U.S. Senate that we have. But more directly, a bunch of cases have been heard over the past several months this session. Affirmative action, abortion, birth control, immigration, uh, big issues that we thought were going to be decided one way, but now may be decided a completely different way, since the fact is, uh, as we discussed in the last segment, anything that uh, Justice Scalia had heard and voted on, but... The case had not yet been handed down publicly. His vote is now void. That changes the very narrow uh, five to four rulings we might have had in many of these cases to a four to four tie. What does that mean? That's what I want to go through with Ian uh, uh case by case here. Ian, uh, let's run through these as quickly as we can. Uh, the first one, is some good news and some bad news, depending on how you look at it. On uh, on immigration, U.S. v. Texas. Where do Where? Where had that case been up till now, and where will it be now that uh, Scalia's vote won't count?
3: Well, there's potential for considerable chaos here. So th- this is the challenge to The programs President Obama announced a little while ago that would allow about 5 million undocumented immigrants to temporarily remain in the country and Mm -hmm. to work while they're here. Um, The lower court struck down those programs and it issued a nationwide injunction, which is not something that a lower court's really supposed to do under these circumstances. Mm. Uh, the, The Supreme Court, Scalia was an all but certain vote against Obama here he's gone. I'm not convinced it's going to be a four-to-four. I think that Roberts and Kennedy are both in play. Mm. But if Roberts and Kennedy both vote with the conservatives, it'll be a four-to-four. That means that the lower court's opinion, with its nationwide injunction, stands. But where things get really odd is what happens if the Justice Department or someone else goes to another court and gets a decision saying that, in fact, these programs are legal. And then you have two equal lower courts one says it's illegal, the other says it's, it's legal. I don't know of a precedent for what to do there, because normally what you do is you go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court would tell you the answer. Mm-hmm. That's not something that's available right
1: now. So normally the Supreme Court will generally only pick up a case when there already is some sort of a, a split among the uh, among the various circuits, and they sort of come in and settle the tie. But if they settle the tie here with a tie... Uh, all of these different, uh, different, different laws of the land in different uh, places of the land, uh, yeah, right?
3: Yeah, no, and that's what a lot of the future could look like. I mean, you know, to take another big case that's pending right now, yeah. the Zubik case deals with whether or not a woman's boss gets to decide if that woman can have uh, birth control uh, mm-hmm. coverage in, in their health plan. And most courts have said that, no, your boss doesn't get to make that decision. Uh, One circuit, though, the Eighth Circuit, has said, yes, they do. And so um, if you live in the Eighth Circuit, if you're a woman who lives in the Eighth Circuit, that's uh, Arkansas and Iowa and Nebraska and Mm -hmm. Minnesota, and I think one other state, if you live in the Eighth Circuit, that means you have less rights than women in the rest of the country. It means that you could be a woman who works in Mississippi. And you could have one set of rights. You could have a you know a right to have that birth control coverage in your health plan, and you cross the border into Arkansas, and suddenly you lose that right.
1: Which it, it doesn't that defy uh, something that uh, Scalia used to pretend he cared about—the uh, equal protection clause of the U.S. Constitution? Uh, if, if federally, if you've got one right in one state, not in another. Uh, That in itself causes a constitutional uh, concern, does it not?
3: Well, that's why we have the Supreme Court. I mean, there's the reason why the court typically takes up what are called circuit splits. Where like where one circuit court disagrees with another mm-hmm. is because you don't want a situation where the Constitution means one thing in Minnesota and something completely different in Pennsylvania. You know you don't want a situation where there's some federal law that means one thing in California, another thing in Texas. You, you know the whole point of having a federal government, having a national government, is that. The things that the national government, the laws that it passes, the things that are in the federal constitution are national. They apply to everyone in the nation, and that comes into doubt now that we have um, a Supreme Court that's, uh, that, that, that may be evenly divided.
1: In in Texas, uh, the the state uh, lawmakers there uh, have been radically restricting uh, uh, the right to an abortion in that state, the uh the very conservative Fifth Circuit upheld uh, the the Texas law there. That was headed to the Supreme Court. That was uh, seen as, it it was believed, was it not, that uh, that was going to also be upheld at the Supreme Court uh, five to four uh, prior to this case, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt? Yes. So
3: this case, um, it involves what are essentially sham health laws. So the general rule is that a state can't pass a law for the purpose of restricting abortion and that's it, but they can um, pass laws for certain, uh, you know, for, for, for certain other purposes. Mm-hmm. One totally legitimate reason why a state could regulate an abortion clinic is to make sure that it's safe, to make sure that it's, that it's healthy. So, you know, if there's an abortion clinic that, you know, for example, is unsterile, The state to pass a law saying, no, you have to have several facilities in your abortion clinic. And, like, that's a perfectly fine law. Right. What Texas did here is they passed what are essentially sham health laws. They passed laws that look, if you don't know that much about health policy, they look like health laws, but really all they do is they just make it very, very hard for abortion clinics to operate and they impose very expensive burdens on them. And they don't actually do anything to benefit anyone's health. And so the question here is whether or not states can get away with that kind of thing. Um, I don't know for sure. Like, Kennedy's vote is thought to be in play in this case as well. It's possible that Kennedy will, will, will cross over with liberals and say, no, what Texas did here is is, is beyond the pale. Um, but it's it's by no means certain. And if you get a four-to-four decision here, that, four, you know, the Fifth Circuit's opinion upholding the Texas law won't apply everywhere, but it will apply in Texas.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the these cases we just went through, immigration, abortion, birth control, they looked like uh, it was going to be bad news for progressives, and it looks like the death of Scalia may or may not change that equation, but even if it does, even if it reverts to the lower court uh, uh, ruling, as you note, Ian, it's only in those places. Yes, it causes confusion around the country. But it could have been worse had Scalia uh, been in there and these things became precedent for the entire nation. So that might be uh, seen as a bit of good news. Uh, And there is actually some out and out good news. I want to get to that very quickly. But uh, just one thought from you on this, Ian, does... um, Uh, Justice Roberts now and all of the justices have an interest in going back and relooking at these cases to see if they can come up with a more narrow agreement so that they don't end up with a tie one way or another.
3: Yeah, I mean, like the the justices, I mean, there's some very ideological justices, but like most of them are also institutionalists. I think that Roberts in particular would rather have there be... A narrow but coherent opinion emerged mm-hmm. from the Supreme Court, that a four to four split. And so, yeah, in some of these cases that have already been argued, where there was going to be a clear five justice majority, it's possible that they will go back and look for ways to sort of punt on the issue that will at least produce an opinion. That, that that's certainly possible. Um, but what's clear is that means that a lot of these cases is you know. Where it looked like there was a the possibility of a sweeping conservative change to the law, that just does not. That just doesn't look like from the table anymore.
1: All right, we we spoke a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now. Time is flying. Uh, about what appeared to be almost certain, very bad news for public sector unions after the oral arguments in Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association that would have uh, kept. Would have disallowed the so-called agency fees that uh, non-union workers are required to pay to unions because the unions uh, negotiate, uh, you know, better salaries, better right. benefits, and so forth for everyone. Looks like the Supreme Court was going to strike that down. Now, where are we, Ian, with the death of Scalia? Yeah,
3: I mean, the the biggest winner in the in the past week are are are, are the public sector unions. So. What agency fees are is that if you have, if you belong to a union, if you work in a unionized shop, the union still required to negotiate on your behalf. All the benefits, all the increased salary, everything that the union gets for everything else, they have to get for you as well. But you're not required to join the union, so you could potentially get something for nothing because the union gets a bigger salary for you, and you don't have to pay any dues. Um, what these agency fees are. Is that the agency fees are the reimbursement that individual workers have to give to the union mm-hmm. to pay, pay their fair share of the cost of getting all these additional benefits if they are not members of the union, so no one gets something for nothing. Mm-hmm. It, looked, it looked like the Supreme Court was going to strike down these agency fees, at least in the context of public sector unions. They just lost their fifth vote to do so. And so, without that fifth vote, without Scalia, um, all of a sudden, you know, all, all of a sudden, there they're, um, it looks like the status quo is going to be maintained. So that, it, the, that the agency fees will remain legal.
1: So it reverts to the lower court. The lower court had said yes; these are uh, these these fees are legal.
3: Well, well, the Supreme Court said like 30 years ago in uh-huh. a case called a boom that they're legal. So. This was a case about whether or not the Supreme Court was going to overrule a long-standing precedent. Um, it looked like the answer was yes, but now they don't have the votes to do it.
1: All right. Redistricting one-man-one-vote had incredibly uh, come up before this uh, this court in a case that could have uh, changed the way uh, basically states were allowed to, uh, to create uh, congressional districts, in, and the uh, right-wingers who brought this case were hoping that this was going to— uh, sort of consolidate power with uh, white rural voters. Where does that case, Evanwell v. Abbott, now stand?
3: Yeah, so that this is another case where, like, the outcome could very well change. Um, the plaintiffs are putting a very aggressive legal theory, and like the the consequences of it is it would have essentially shifted power from Latino communities to white communities in a number of states when those states were allocating congressional districts. So, like, in effect, it's, uh, in cases like Texas, if you lived in a Latino community, you would have less representation. If you lived in a white community, you'd have more representation. Um, it looked, again, like there might be five votes for this after the oral argument. Mm-hmm. Now, does it doesn't look that way anymore? Because they need, the plaintiff needed Scalia, and he's not there.
1: And the lower court, again, in this case, had ruled against uh, against the plaintiffs. And the decision, if there's a tie at the Supreme Court, that will go back to the lower court, which had ruled against this crazy, unprecedented uh, uh, redistricting idea that would have affected the entire nation and, and v- frankly, helped Republicans at the at the uh, voting booth. Uh, we're we're gonna speak in the. Uh, in the next segment, uh, without you, Ian, about the uh, uh, the case uh, concerning Obama's Clean Power Plan and what the uh, Scalia's vote meant there. But I want to get one more before I let you go. I know you got to go on affirmative action, a very uh, important case challenging affirmative action, uh, and another one of these cases that probably would not have even been brought to the court. Uh, correct? Had the uh, plaintiffs not relied on a on a right wing majority there to help them out?
3: Well, here's the thing. I mean, in- is the case where where the death of Scalia is likely to matter the least, and that's because Justice Kagan was was already recused, who's, who's an Obama appointee, uh-huh. yeah. was recused from the case. Ah. So, you know, it, it, there was there's some uncertainty about what Kennedy wants to do. He might punt it down to the lower court, although that seems less likely now because he may no longer have the majority to, to kill affirmative action. I I, I think what what's going to happen here is that. If if the conservatives stay together, instead of having a four-to-four decision, you have a four-to-three decision, and that's enough to strike down the plan.
1: Uh, Ian. Uh, this is uh, so unprecedented. This is so extraordinary. I- every time we finish uh, talking, I say I-, I suspect I'll be speaking with you soon. Now I really mean it. I suspect we're going to be talking quite a bit uh, over these next few months. And who knows, next few years after all of this uh, fine mess. Ian Melheiser, check out his work, of course, at th- thinkprogress.org. And by his very smart book, Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian Milheiser, always great to talk to, you, my friend. Thank you uh, again for, for joining us on short notice on this one as well. All right, thanks, Brad. All right, we're going to take a quick break and come back with more broadcast, including a Green News Report and uh, and well, as I mentioned, uh, questions about Scalia's decision on uh, Obama's Clean Power Plan. That and much more ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Melting for Desi Doyen right here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you, uh, Des. Uh, before we get to the Green News Report, I'm, I'm. Uh, what do they say in, in Twitter speak? I am still just SMH.
2: Shaking my head. Uh,
1: shaking my head over what uh, uh, the, the the news events of the last few weeks. It is just amazing. And you and I talked about it Uh, A a little bit. Haven't gotten to talk about it on air that much. We've been so busy, but uh, we were talking about how had any other Supreme Court justice died, uh, even on the right, it would not have had this sort of earthquake quality. Well, maybe it would have had this earthquake quality because we're talking about the balance of the court now changing.
2: Right. And not just the balance of the court changing, but one of the most conservative and I would say uh, judicially radical uh, judges ever to sit on the Supreme Court who was willing to pull in old cases and bring them back so he could relitigate and put a conservative radical, I should say, conservative stamp on them. So, you know, Scalia is not just any balance of power person. He is sort of like the fulcrum of, of what environmental law might or could be, depending on which path we take.
1: Environmental law, in this case, obviously all uh, yes, laws of the land. But we, we had used the... Uh, it would be, for those uh, comic book fans out there, if uh, any superhero in the Justice League of America was killed, that would be a huge, that would be a devastating blow to the Justice League. However... This is the equivalent of kind of losing Superman for the Republicans, isn't it, on on the bench?
2: Yeah, we kind of of equated everybody with the Justice League. So, you know, for what that's worth, uh, yeah, you know, if something were to happen, say, to Ginsburg or Alito, you know, they would be sort of like a Batman equivalent level of changing the tectonic... Uh, forces underlying it but if on you get their rid respective of, sides on their respective right. sides but when you when you get rid of superman man that sort of changes everything
1: and, so and and that, course,
2: that's what i equate and, with. and you know
1: what i already uh feel bad uh comparing scalia to superman because i, I really like superman and i really dislike antonin scalia. but this is
2: just a metaphor so yes.
1: okay thank you thanks for making <laughs> that clear Uh, Okay, I don't know if we have any metaphors in in our latest Green News report, but I know we've got a lot of news to get to in that report. Uh, So here we go, our latest
0: Green News report. There should have been a giant headline that said Supreme Court attacks Earth.
1: The
2: sudden passing of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia leaves U.S. climate action and the planet hanging in the balance. Coal miners and their families who helped turn on the lights and power our factories for generations are now wondering, has our country forgotten us? Hillary Clinton calls for assistance for coal country.
3: Why does the fossil fuel industry spend huge amounts of money on campaign
0: contributions?
2: Bernie Sanders keeps hammering Republicans on climate change. Plus...
0: But listen, if you're visiting L.A. and you're feeling the burn, that just may be the methane.
2: (laughs) The worst natural gas spill in U.S. history is finally plugged. All
1: of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And
2: I'm Desi Doyen.
1: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment.
0: No, they capped it. Did you hear that? They capped We've had a horrible (laughs) methane leak here. That, yeah, they finally did it. They used a the combination of mud and stabilizing fluid and cement. Uh, the same stuff Trump uses on his hair. <laughs> Man, this is
1: your Green News Report.
2: Gonna soak up the sun.
1: Okay, Desi Doyen, it was just days ago. We were talking about the unprecedented move by Antonin Scalia and the Supreme Court to shut down the president's landmark clean power plan. Well, now... It's a whole new world, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. It promises to be an epic battle over the nomination of a new justice for the U.S. Supreme Court after conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia passed away over the weekend with huge long-term implications, not just for the nation, but also for the planet. In one of his last official acts, Justice Scalia voted to put a stay on President Obama's Clean Power Plan, the first ever emission standards for the nation's polluting power plants, freezing those rules in an unprecedented ruling that implied that the right-wing majority intended to eventually overturn it.
1: And the reason it was unprecedented is because this case is still being heard in lower courts.
2: Right. And scientists warn that without the Clean Power Plan, it will be very difficult for the U.S. to meet its international emissions obligations in the historic Paris Agreement. And that has grave implications for future generations. So a shift in the balance of the deeply divided court could have very long-range consequences for the U.S and the world. Regardless of the makeup of the future Supreme Court and regardless of the ultimate fate of the Clean Power Plan, however, energy industry analysts say the coal industry is not coming back in the U.S., where coal as a source of electricity appears to be in terminal decline. Speaking of coal, in the most recent Democratic presidential debate, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton called for assistance for coal country, highlighting her little-known proposal to assist folks in Appalachia and other coal states with funding for the transition to renewable energy and job training. I've come forward with... For example, a plan to revitalize coal country, the coal field communities that have been so hard hit by the changing economy, by the reduction in the use of coal. And I'm going to do everything I can to address distressed
1: communities. And those communities need it. You've got all of these coal workers. They could easily be retrained and given different jobs, uh, installing solar, installing wind making the same good living and yet not killing themselves and the planet at the same time.
2: Now, at that same Democratic debate and also at the Republican presidential debate over the weekend, the corporate debate media moderators failed to ask a single question about climate change or energy. So Democratic presidential candidate and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders brought it up himself.
3: Why does the fossil fuel industry spend huge amounts of money on campaign contributions? Any connection to the fact that not one Republican candidate for president thinks and agrees with the scientific community that climate change is real and that we have got to transform our energy
1: system? Yeah, there might be a connection, but we'd appreciate it if you didn't say it out loud, Bernie Sanders.
2: Big moves for the U.S. auto industry. Both General Motors and Tesla have announced that their next-generation all-electric long-range cars, which can go over 200 miles on a single charge, will come in at a game-changing price of $30,000 or less, thanks to a rapid decline in the cost of batteries. That's with state and federal tax incentives, but it brings the cost of an all-electric car in line with the average price price of a conventional gasoline car.
1: When's that new Tesla come out?
2: 2017.
1: We could use a game changer around here.
2: Finally, the largest natural gas spill in U.S. history has finally been stopped. Southern California gas company responsible for the massive natural gas leak from an underground storage facility in Porter Ranch near Los Angeles has announced it plugged the broken well after four months. It's the first step in plugging the leak for good, and it's cost the company nearly a billion dollars so far.
1: So sad. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime from Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Just breathe. What was it a month or two ago, Desi Doyle, when we drove out past Porter Ranch and from the highway, you could smell you it. You could smell the stench of that uh, horrible methane leak.
2: Yes, it was. Uh, it was surprising and extensive that we were probably, I would say, at least half a mile from the uh, the storage tanks where the leak was occurring, uh, and these people lived within a thousand feet.
1: At least easily, we we did not even know that we were actually going by a porter or didn't notice that uh, we were in the neighborhood of Porter <laughs> Ranch <laughs> yeah. as we drove by on the highway and smelled that. That terrible stench, and it was like, oh,
2: that's we, what they're talking we must about. must be near
1: Puerto, yeah. Uh, so just amazing. Glad that that is now uh, filled up for now. Th- th- yeah, it still looks a, so yeah. far
2: so good. They've now begun pouring cement into it. If you remember from the BP oil spill, mm-hmm. that is the thing that if it works, it it kills the well. So that is what they're planning on doing. However, they are still planning on extracting all that gas. They're not going to shut it down completely forever. Southern California still want, gas company still wants that money. So they are planning on still extracting that gas in some fashion so that they can continue to sell it
1: well you know there's money we we can't just leave that in the ground god forbid we've got to burn it Uh, uh yeah amazing and and on that car by the way the electric car uh, when do I get one of those? When do I get a Tesla?
2: The uh, the Tesla won't be available until 2017 at the earliest, but they're usually late, so probably 2018. Oh, However, yeah. the Chevy Bolt, that's Bolt with the B like boy, that is going to be available at the end of 2016.
1: Bolt, not Volt. Correct. And so much lower price like the Tesla much lower pr- the Tesla Model 3 much lower price. Yes. And you think they're going to be late, which is sad because I was going to ask you, "Oh, does that mean 2017? Does that mean it's going to come out at the end of 2016?"
2: Well, for the, model for the, only year? for the Bolt, not for the Tesla, All unfortunately. Right. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, I was going to say thank you to our producer, Desi Doyen, but I'll say thanks for nothing, Desi Doyen. <laughs> See if you can talk to your friend Elon Musk and do something about that. Uh, anyway, yes, thank you, Desi. Also, my thanks to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Ian Milheiser of Think Progress Justice. What an amazing uh, turn of events. Thanks to you, of course, for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes. And please give us a nice review over there and help spread the word. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find and follow me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at TheBradBlog. That's it. I'm out of here for now. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.